I, uh, I'm going to go and just pray and say amen because Cassie handled the sermon already, uh, killing that. And so, yeah, thank you, Lord, that you're here and that you want to be with us. Um, hey, before we get started, my name's Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here. I think all y'all, well, that's, you know what? Thank you. All right. Um, all y'all know me. If you're watching later, listening later, and you don't know me, that's who I am. Um, before we get started, I have a couple things that I want to do. Uh, the first thing is I just want to shout out all y'all that were at our team night time on Friday night. I, yeah, I got to say, I have, uh, even just hearing from a couple of y'all, it was, it, you know, it was an encouraging time, I got to say. And I think that it painted a picture not just of, of where we are right now, but likewise of where we believe God is taking us. Uh, and really, I, I was more than anything moved by how uh, passionate and invested y'all are in this church and in what we're doing. I got to say that, uh, and I mentioned this the, the other night, that, you know, the idea of, of us making an impact in our community as a church is not bound up in my preaching or even as great as like worship team did today, not, not bound up in that. It's bound up in a people who are actually like mobilized in order to make an impact in the world around them. That's what those nights are for. It has the idea of saying we're making an impact here, but more than anything, it's by people who are moved by the reality that we serve a God who actively loves people, loves the world around him, isn't kind of relegated to just our lives or our community or even this building, but is moving or desires to move at bare minimum from our lives into the lives of other people through him moving through us. And I think that seeing y'all invested and passionate uh, Friday night was a real encouragement and a real, uh, I think, vision-building moment toward that end. So I want to say thank y'all for that. Um, and so, no, I was gonna, I was gonna be like, I'm gonna give you a round of applause, but you sit there quietly. We're not gonna do that. That was, it was a bad idea. When the moment it crossed my mind, I was like, no, nah, that's not, that's not a good plan. Um, but I do want to again say thank y'all and applaud y'all emotionally, okay, uh, for for your efforts and your presence Friday night. Now, uh, other quick. Quick thought real fast, quick question to kind of set the tone for the day, all right, as we explore the Bible, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time to get into the Bible, uh, kind of allow God and invite God to speak to us through words that we believe are given to us by him, uh, but I want to just set our mind in the right place by simply asking a question. How long does it take you to miss home on vacation? How long does it take you to miss home on vacation? I'm not asking rhetorically. Feel free to come, feel free to throw it out there. Three days, 14 days, that was an aggressive one. Oh man, all right. 14 days, so it said five weeks, all right. Uh, all right, I, I'm guessing some of y'all don't need to go on a long vacation unless you might not come back. I gotta say, I'm a little concerned. Some of y'all gonna go on a few weeks too many and now all of a sudden you ain't, you just gonna leave all your stuff here. You'll just build a new life where you're at. All right, so sounds good. Um, so I, I, all right, so that's funny because we got anywhere from like five days to like five weeks in those responses. That's, that's, that's a pretty diverse set of, of, of you know, of conditions. Um, anybody else? Let's give one, one more. Somebody just throw out your thing. How, how long it take you to miss home on vacation? 24 hours. I'm probably more on that side if I'm being honest. Uh, you give me like three days away from home and I start, I start kind of aching a little bit and being like, man, I want to go home. You know, I, um, I am a notorious homebody to be quite fair. Um, and my daughter, likewise, notorious homebody, which I, I appreciate sometimes, uh, except for when she's like, I don't want to go to school. And I'm like, oh, chill, dude, chill, chill, chill. Um, however, 
What I will say is I, I like asking that question because it gives us a good, I think, vision of our relationship with the idea of home. And it's not necessarily to say that there's a bad or good idea, but it's funny that when you ask that question, it does give you sort of a vision of how we, how the, the, the values that we have, and not that, again, they're bad values or good values. Some people can, can be away from home and feel like they're out for a long time and feel really fine. Other people feel that sense of like, man, I really miss home. And, and here's the thing. I think that there can be unhealthy and healthy ways we do both those things, right? If, if you're saying, hey, if you're, if you're in the camp of saying, I, I don't miss home, I love vacation, and that's, I, I could spend six weeks away from home and not be thinking about Austin, Texas, particularly from about May to June, uh, mid-July in there too, um, right? If you're in that camp, there's definitely a place where, where we can do a healthy version of that, where we see where we're going, we value where we're going, we're enjoying it, we're present there. And then on top of that, we see the value of home still. We see the value of, of going back home, the things we've built there and what God has called us to there. And it's like, that's healthy. Even if you spend an extended amount of time away, there's a healthy tension there. And that same thing is still, I think, plausible on the other side. If you're gone for five days and within three days, you're already like, man, I could, I could get back home. There's an unhealthy way to do that where you look and you're like, I only want to be at home. There's nothing out in the world for me. It's like, man, you're missing out on a huge amount of blessings and a huge amount of just incredible things and people and culture. But at the same time, right, uh, it, it, it's healthy to value where you're at. And there's a tension there, it's weird. But here's, here's the reason I'm asking that today. Uh, it's not to talk about vacations and to wonder what I should be feeling or to tell you how you should be feeling, because like I said, I'm not sure there's a right answer to that. But uh, today we're continuing our series in Hebrews and we're gonna focus on a question that is both, one, seemingly simple. It's something that a lot of y'all have thought about, especially you've been in church for a little bit, you've thought about it, you've talked about it, you've probably heard sermons, not just sermons, but better sermons than this one's gonna be about the subject. Um, you, you've heard a lot, you've consumed a lot of content. Uh, and then two, at the same time, it's also powerfully uh, profound, or I actually wrote down profoundly powerful, so just, either one you wanna take there is fine. But it's profoundly powerful in that it's a subject that's incredibly important to the condition of our hearts, the condition of our lives, and, and maybe most importantly, the condition of our relationship with God. And that seemingly simple yet profoundly powerful question is this. As a Christian, how should I relate to and value the good things in my life? As a Christian, how should I relate to and value the good things in my life? How do I relate to life's blessings, the things that have gone really good, the things that are really beautiful? How should I relate to those things? And here's the thing. Here's why uh, I think that's important. Because how we relate to and value the blessings in our lives will likely, not always, but will likely determine not just what you run to, but how you run to things when the going gets tough. How you relate to and how you value the blessings in your life will likely determine not just what you run to, but how you run to things for security and, and aid when, when the going gets tough, right? Whether you're doing that in a healthy or whether you're doing that in an unhealthy way. And so really answering and understanding the question of how should I relate to and how should I value good things in my life, 
right? It is important to, to answer really, I mean, realistically, because it, it will in some way determine how we react when, when things start going not as good. And here's where I want to start today. Like most days, I want to answer this question by going to scripture. We're going to, we're going to tease out Hebrews a little bit. And uh, I want to start today by reading our verses. And if you can't add a respect, I want to invite you to stand uh, for these words that a lot of us in here believe are given to us from God, right, as a blessing in and of themselves, uh, of wisdom and revelation of who God is. And so we're going to take time. We're going to read this. Afterwards, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, in which case I'm inviting you uh, into a traditional response of thanks be to God. And so feel free to say that uh, as we finish up. But if you want to read these words with me, we're going to come out of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. And they read like this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. This is the word of the Lord. You have a seat. Yeah. Um, so what's happening here? Let's start with that question we start with most weeks. What's, what's happening here? Uh, and I think that's always an important question to start with, even when you're reading the Bible on your own, in your own house, in your own time. It's really helpful to get things like a study Bible or things maybe like a small one-volume commentary to help you get an understanding of what's happening here. Because oftentimes we can only understand what the author of a particular book is, is trying to accomplish when we understand the situation that author is speaking into. Okay, and so what's happening here? What, what's, what, what is the author trying to accomplish? And, and that starts with who the author's speaking to. And so how many of y'all remember uh, some details from last week? Who is the author speaking to? Anything. Hebrews. Okay, the book is called Hebrews because most scholars believe that the author is speaking to Hebrews, okay, to Hebrews people, or Hebrew people. Now, a couple of quick, fun, Jeopardy moments. Who is the author? Don't know. All right, one of y'all asked me uh, during the week who the author was, and I gave you my, the, the answer I enjoy the most. Y'all can ask me that later. It's too much to explain right now. However, we don't know who the author was. We likewise don't know the region that the author is writing to specifically. There's even beliefs that this letter was really just written as a broad letter to encourage a variety of different people across the region, just because, in, in part because it addresses very like detailed Hebrew theology or Jewish theology, but likewise because it actually addresses a lot of different issues that may have been going on at the time. There's a lot of things happening here, but what we do know uh, is that the author is uh, writing to Hebrew Christians, those who have been Jewish uh, and participated in the faith of Judaism um, and are now followers of Jesus. He, too, um, the audience is in life's hard moments, right? The audience is likely meant to be individuals that are struggling, that are discouraged, right? That in the midst of hard moments, yes, but also are discouraged in the sense that they're losing the will to fight. And I think that's important. 
Because I think if you and me are both honest, we can, can know what it feels like to be in life's hard moments, but to still have the will to fight. Right? We can relate to that. Those are seasons that are okay, if I'm being honest. Like, hard stuff is here. You feel encouraged. You feel like you can keep going. You're fighting. It may feel like a lot of pressure, but the weight of the world isn't crushing you. And it's like, man, I can, I can, and that doesn't mean that the burdens are light. Sometimes the burdens are super heavy in that time too. It's not that your encouragement and discouragement is related to how heavy the burden is. If, if that was the case, then I mean, we'd have really no miraculous stories that inspire you of people overcoming extraordinary circumstances, right? We wouldn't have that, but we do. And that's because people can still be encouraged and ready to fight despite how difficult life is. That's not these people though. These people are discouraged and hurting. Life has been hard, and life has been hard in a way that has beat them up and left them absent of the will to fight. And here's the result, that now as a result of being in a hard season, being discouraged and not really having the will to fight anymore, the result is that they're tempted to leave or add something onto their faith in Jesus. And that's really what almost the entirety of Hebrews is about. Last week, we said that at times the comfort our hearts need is the truth of who God is, and that's a lot of what the first section of Hebrews is about. It's identifying discouraged people and speaking powerful and big theological ideas to that discouragement. So we see these really big ideas take place here in Hebrews, and sometimes we can feel like, again, that's, and is that really for me? Is that for, you know, radical Christians or, you know, fanatics or pastors or theologians of some kind? When really we see the author of Hebrews saying, no, this is valuable for you. And I want to, probably going to repeat that most weeks here because I want you to kind of not check out when we start talking about things that may seem harder to understand uh, or, or, or things that may feel a little bit, quote unquote, superfluous. But really that kind of paints out what the whole first section of Hebrews is about. Uh, we see this in terms of... Um, Last point, the temptation to leave or add something onto the faith addressed even starting in chapter two, right? In chapter two, the author starts to speak about angels. And it's like, what's the deal with angels? And here's the thing is that in the New Testament, there is a small but real history of people being visited by angels or starting to place their faith in angels uh, that really visited them and, and taught them a message that was contrary to Jesus' message. And so this, this happens in some of Paul's writing, and, and there's some issues with it. And as a result, the author of Hebrews is talking about some of these issues. There's also a concern about whether Jesus is a created being or a creator. Is he underneath and secondary to the person of Yahweh, the Father, or is he with the Father in creating everything? If he's secondary, if he's underneath the Father, then maybe he's like the angels. But, but the author of Hebrews makes it explicitly clear. The angel, if there's an angel that wants to try and turn you away from God, Jesus is greater than those angels. Likewise, if there's any belief that Jesus is secondary to Yahweh, to God the Father, and is equal to other angels, he's not. He's greater than those angels. And so that's really what chapter 2 starts to build out. All of chapter 1 that starts with Jesus is God. Right? He's power. That's what we talked about last week. And so that makes sense. Jesus is God. There's some angels out here that are apparently saying crazy stuff, if you believe that, and we're shutting that down right now. Right? Chapter 2 checks out. 
But here's the thing, in our text today, the author identifies something else that his audience is turning to in the midst of their discouragement. This one's a little more confusing because he identifies Moses. Everybody say Moses. All right, and you might be thinking, well, that's not a bad thing. They're turning to Moses. That has to be really a good thing, and in some way it is. It is a good thing. Because if you just look at what this text says about Moses, we don't got to go through the entirety of Moses' history, but if you just look at what this text says about Moses, it's really powerful, right? If you go to verse 2, it starts really by saying that Moses was appointed by God, right? That he, that is Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all of God's household. That tells us two things from that verse. One, Moses was appointed by God. And two, that Moses was faithful to the God that appointed him. All right, Moses, you, you're looking good right now, dude. Praise, praise God for Moses. All right, but, but we don't just get there. We don't just stop there. But if you go down a couple of more verses, the, the remaining verse tells us something else about Moses, that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, household. So not only was Moses a member of God's household, but he was a leader and a servant in God's household. Okay, so the verse itself actually paints some really beautiful images of Moses. It paints some beautiful things about him. And I think going above and beyond just what the verse is communicating to us, what we can understand, if you were a Hebrew Christian and you came from a world where you were in Judaism for the majority of your life, talking about Moses was an even bigger deal than just saying these few good things. He represented what I could only describe as a heritage of God's blessing. Your heritage, where you come from, that where you come from is God's blessing, right? He represents this idea of God intervening and, and God blessing and God restoring and God redeeming. In fact, the main story that's quoted in terms and really becomes the foundation of almost, it feels like every movement of God after this, the, the way it's communicated, the language that's used to kind of communicate it and build culture around it for the Hebrew people is really built on the idea of the book of Exodus, where, where Moses, right, through God, God works through Moses to free God's people from Egypt. So this is more than just a good thing. This is, I mean, a heritage of beautiful blessing and power. And here's what gets tricky, because while that seems beautiful and that seems absolutely positively lovely, the author does this really weird thing in the midst of all this praise for the person of Moses. Right? He tells them right from the jump, verse 2, to consider, consider Jesus. This Greek word is really focused on the idea of pointing the eyes of your heart or your spirit towards something. And so in the midst of praising Moses, in the midst of saying, yes, Moses was faithful, Moses was appointed, Moses was a leader, and Moses represents a heritage of faith and blessing in the person of Yahweh. He stops to say in the midst of that, that may be true, but what I want you to do is appoint the eyes of your heart instead of to Moses to Jesus. Despite how great Moses is, point the eyes of your heart not to Moses, but rather point them to Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith. This idea that, that uh, Jesus is actually sent by God as well. That's what apostle means. It means a sent one. And so Moses was sent by God, but, but Jesus was also sent by God. 
and, and he is the high priest of our faith. This idea that, that he, just, he, he is the sacrifice that purifies us, but likewise, it's now Jesus that represents us like Moses represented the Hebrew people before. And so, yeah, we get that, G, that Moses was a leader and appointed by God, but Jesus was too. Moses was faithful to God, but Jesus was too. Jesus uh, is now in, in the place of the representative for us. Jesus is, uh, we kind of see this and it feels like, what's going on here? Why are you undercutting my man? And then it gets worse, right? The, the author is like, no, see, we're, we're starting with the comparison, but now we're going to double down. Because right after that, after saying, yeah, these two things are true of both people, after that he says, but Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Like a builder is worthy of more glory than a house. And we start to see a really kind of major distinction start getting painted here. That, that like, man, maybe Moses is a part of the house, but Jesus is like the builder of the house. He's something different and distinct than Moses. He's not just another sent one, nor is he just another representative, but he's something more and something greater. And then the author of Hebrews doubles down again. He ends up saying, no, no, Moses was a servant in all God's household, but Jesus is a son in God's household. And so this is really confusing if I'm being honest and if you're being honest. Even in studying, it can be tricky because you're taking something that's beautiful and something that's good in Moses, and then you're just kind of shredding it to pieces with the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And it could be easy to look and be like, bruh, why are you dunking on Moses? Why are you just dunking on him like this? Just a few hundred years ago, this was your guy. This was your guy to lead us out of Egypt, to lead us out of slavery. This was your guy to lead us out of everything that was dark and everything that was hurtful. You came to him. You, he was the one that bore your name for the first time. And we said, who is it that, that, that calls us? Who is it that, that you represent? And he looked at us and said, I, I represent I am that I am. He sent me. This heritage of faith, this heritage of redemption and beauty, and now you're just here, just yamming on it. Like Wemby been yamming on people for the Spurs. Shout out to the NBA guys in here. What are you doing? What's, what's happening here? And here's the thing, friend. Often what we think of when we think of running away from God is the idea of running to something that's immoral. That's what we oftentimes think of. That the idea of departing or running away from God is the idea of running away from something as in the prodigal son. In fact, the story is called the prodigal son. It paints the picture as though there's no other characters in the entire story. It, it's, it's the son that is saying, hey, I want to run from God, so I'm going to run to debauchery and to sin and to immorality. And hear me, there are very real Warnings against that. There's warnings against that later on in this chapter. The prodigal son story is actually a story of a warning against that. And we're tempted to that too. There is a deceitfulness of sin that is so aggressive and will malign us. It will hurt us because we just do one little thing that's bad and do another little thing that we know isn't right and do another little thing until we've become so numb that we no longer think what we're doing is wrong. And now in a lot of ways, we've departed from the Lord being the, lo being the Lord and we've stepped into us being the Lord. We're saying, well, I'll gauge what's right. I'll take a little bit of what Jesus says and a little bit of what I say and I'll make this incredibly beautiful life for myself from my own perspective, right? There's warnings against that pattern of sin in the Bible. But what's incredible here 
is that that's not what's actually happening here. The author of Hebrews is saying, I'm warning you against going back to the place of security that's found in the heritage of blessing and safety that has come from Moses. What? Why? Why? What's happening here? Because that's weird. That's weird. But here's what I think is at the heart of the author of Hebrews' concern, okay? Is that as we move from in the midst of our tough moments, when we value the, the blessings of our life and we start to, to treasure them so much so that in the midst of our, our difficult moments, we start to run to them in unhealthy ways, Something really tricky can happen in our heart. Something really subtle, but something really tricky and something that can be really scary. And it's this, that, that often in the comfort and security of life's blessings, Jesus moves from being the source to being just a source. That in the comfort and security of life's blessings, Jesus moves from being the source into being a source. And here's the thing, I initially had like a bunch of little words in here, but then I started to broaden it because to be honest, this became more and more true of more and more things that I thought about. That when, when we are, are leaning on the comfort and security of life's blessings, Jesus can move from the source of our joy to being just a source of our joy. Right, what we, what we seek to uplift us in the midst of difficult moments, that we start to just say, okay, Jesus is one of a host, a pantheon of different sources of joy. But then I was like, well, what else could we put into this sentence? And it was like, yeah, in the midst of, of the comfort and security of life's blessings, Jesus moves from being the source of our redemption to just a source of our redemption. What do I mean by that? Well, all of a sudden, I'm looking at Jesus to prove me as honorable and good, and I promise you, a lot of y'all parents, no matter how old you are, you know this feeling, that it can easily shift from him being the source to him being a source, because I'm also looking at my kids and, and basing how well I'm doing in life, how worthy I am, how lovable and successful I am. I'm good judging my value based on their behavior. And so now, all of a sudden, because their behavior is going downwards, my value is going downwards, and my response is to choke that moment back into to obedience, back into control, because I need them to be right, not for their sake, but for my sake. So now he's the source to just a source of my redemption. Now, I mean, let's just keep going. Lowly go key, we could do this for a while. So we're just gonna do this, gonna be the last one, right? It's often, oh, bro. Uh, that's good. That's good. Keep it off. Uh, comfort and security of life's blessings can make Jesus the source of justice to just a source of justice. Right? No longer is Jesus the source of my vision of the world being made right, but he's just an option in the world being made right. So take a little bit of that, but I mix a little bit of, of another philosophy of justice and another philosophy of justice. And before you know it, I've moved away from the beautiful vision of God's restoration of the world, and I've put myself in a place where I lift someone else up, but I batter someone else down. And all of a sudden, I have a corrupted vision of justice that says, well, I'm going to take everyone who is ethnically marginalized, and I'm going to uplift them. But to make things right, I'm going to take anyone that used to be uplifted, I'm going to cut them. Because make everything right. 
right? I, I, I don't, I say this with a lot of earnestness, if that's a word. Um, I got some nods, so I'm guessing I'm good here. Um, with a lot of earnestness and, and a lot of sorrow that I really love the general direction that our society has taken in observing and helping marginalized communities. That's beautiful. I think the church should see that, and a lot of the church has seen that and thought like this is something we should partake in. This is actually the, this is the, the vision of the gospel. This is our responsibility. This is honestly our heritage, and so let, we should walk into that. What I have deeply, yeah, I must say deeply despised and been very frustrated by is that in the church, what I get is the beautiful vision of brothers who are Hispanic, black, Asian, white, anything else in between there, um, and, and them becoming one. That the justice of, of the, the household of God is taking those who are on, on completely two different planes and making them brothers in the faith. And I look out at some of the movements of justice that we have in the world today, and some of those same brothers, particularly the brothers that are white, are in the justice that's propagated in the world, they're cut down and made little. And instead of building up marginalized individuals, the brothers, particularly the brothers from the white community, are, are treated kind of small, and they're made little. And that is justice. No brother, no sister. That's just inverted oppression. And I promise if you took that same philosophy and you put it in the context where any other ethnic group was a majority, it would be the same marginalization all the same. See, that, that's not justice. But when we look at the vision of the gospel and we see at the end a vision of every single person having this, this equality of dignity and value, this equality of culture, not everyone is coming to the gospel and becoming Jewish. Early in the Bible, people are coming and kind of just being who they are, but adjusting their life into the moral vision of Jesus' life, to love God and to love neighbor. And then we translate that into all these different ways. We translate into different songs. So we got Spanish songs and English songs. And, you know, songs in, those are the only two languages I'm really familiar with. But you insert another language. We got, we got them joints in them songs. And so uh, it, it, it's this vision of people coming in and being made new and then becoming one. So much so that in Revelation, there's this vision that the kings of the earth bring their glory into the final days of creation, into the final eternal resting place. What is their glory? They don't bring money. What is their glory? They don't bring castles or palaces. They bring the beauty of God's redemptive work in their culture and their people. That they would be one of a host of representatives that show everybody in a beautiful vision of God's restoration. That's the glory they bring in. But what an exchange for Jesus to go from the source to a source on the subject of justice. What an incredible and horrible exchange. And so you ask me, what's so bad about Jesus going from a source, or going from the source to a source? Man, it's situational, but a lot. It puts, it makes you vulnerable to, hello. It makes you, see, that was the Lord right there, I think. I think that was him, I want to say. I'm just going to, I'm going to go with that. Um, it makes you vulnerable to misstewarding what's in front of you. 
but it likewise makes the thing that you're serving, the thing that you're trying to bless, vulnerable to your misdoing. Right? That's the great concern. Again, I mean, I, the example I used about children and family is a, is a great one. And the thing is, not only do you see it, let's be real, and I'm going to be honest with some of y'all, y'all some of y'all have lived that. Some of us have lived that. Some of y'all struggle to look at God and to envision him well because the vision you have of God is one that will strangle your misadventures and demolish you with brutality and with anger until you are obedient because his demand is obedience for his sake, not guidance for your sake. How? Because when comfort and life securities and security from life's blessings move Jesus from the source to just a source, we can tend to totally corrupt the calling God has for us. We can totally corrupt the things that are in front of us. There is a, how many of y'all know the rapper, uh, it's still a Christian rapper. Some of y'all were like, what's he going to say? No, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it a buck up here. Uh, Andy Minio. All right, so I've got some super Christians. No, I'm just playing. I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. I'm just playing with y'all, kind of. Um, Andy Minio is a Christian rapper that was pretty hot a few years ago, I got to say. In fact, if you ever hear a commercial with the song, coming in hot, coming in hot, that's his song. So uh, now you know. However, uh, about 10 years ago, he put out uh, an album called Uncomfortable. I kind of forget the name of the album, to be honest. It was the one where his face was up against some glass. And um, it wasn't like a massively popular album or anything like that, but there was one song at the very end of the album that I remember when I listened to it when I was a young man. It stuck with me, but uh, over the last few years, it's become something that I turn to quite regularly. And it's this song entitled Uncomfortable. And um, here's why it stuck with me. I just want to read, I was going to play it for you, but I don't want to do that. I'm going to just read you the lyrics to it, and, and I want you to just try to internalize it. The song begins, nobody told me you could die like this. Nobody told me you could die from bliss. Nobody told me. Nobody told me. We never ever saw it coming. Live it up, live it up. Nobody ever told me you could die like this. Live it up, live it up. Nobody ever told me we never saw it coming. Live it up, live it up. No better, nobody ever told me we could die like this. Live it up, live it up. Corrupted by the comfort we love. Um, when I was a young man, I liked the hook of the song, and I interpreted the hook of the song through simple comforts. I was in college at the time. I didn't really know what comfort was. I was either living with my parents, or I lived in what can only be described as the most essential or quintessential rinky-dink college apartment you've ever seen in your life. The neighbors downstairs were always high. The neighbors upstairs were always playing music really loud. You know, it was just that environment. And then, in that moment, all I would really think about is, you know what, I want to be like really crazy for the Lord. I'm going to go to India. That was the way I thought, for real. That's how, I'm, 
y'all in my mind right now, I'm speaking to a bunch of Indians, to be quite frank with you right now. I assume that we're in India right now. I don't know how we didn't get there because was, I was dead certain that's what was going to happen. I was over here trying to learn Hindi for five minutes. I was like, bro, this is really hard. <laughs> this is nothing like English or Spanish. I cannot figure this out. Um, but that's where I swore. I, that's, what, that's how I saw that. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, God, don't let me be comfortable. God, let me go and just be radical all the time. But as I've gotten older, so many things have changed in my life. And more realistically, so many comforts have increased. When I had little, I thought, God, save me and spare me from an addiction to the blessings that I have so that I can be radical for you. But the thing is, the thing is, is comforts have increased. My prayer has slowly been like, God, protect me from the comforts and securities of my blessings so that I could just be faithful to you. I just want to be faithful to you, man. Let me be faithful to where you're calling me. Let me be faithful to what you have for me. Because I can get lost in the securities, lost in the comforts that I have. And here's the thing, friends, I'm going to level with you. Like when I was growing up, the vision that I had for what life was, was pretty far removed from the vision of the life that I have. Like nobody really had a lot. And as a result, I got to level with you. You see my life right now as properly normal. I live a proper middle class life. But the struggle from your perspective to my perspective is that my proper middle-class life is also my dreams come true. So it's overwhelming at times to not look at the things that I have, my incredible wife, my beautiful children. I got a house that got two stories <laughs> with what I would describe as a hallway upstairs, which was always my gauge for virgin on mansion. So I got a mansion in my mind. It's so hard to look at those things and not just want to just drive myself deep into them and spend every waking moment with them and just cling to them because I never thought I would have them. And as a result, I never want to lose them. And so my control comes out and I want to cling to them and I never want them to be away from me. And so every day I drop my daughter off at school and I wonder if something's going to happen to her. One, because we've got a crappy situation with that when it comes to guns, but also because I just desperately don't want to lose any of these treasured things that I have in my life that I never thought I would have. How should I relate to that? That's challenging because I don't want to strangle my kids. I don't want to strangle my wife. I don't want to become some hermit in a house that never gets out. I don't want to, I don't want to become somebody that is over, overly, I'm pretty far from this one. I was going to say overly, overly obsessed with my, my yard, but that's not, that ain't going to be me. Um, my, my backyard looks like the yard that does not have a man to work it in, in the garden. So um, that's, that's, yeah, it's hard. But um, I don't want that to be me. But man, it overwhelms me because I love those things. I, and the thing is, they are blessings. They're blessings. They're beautiful things. My children are amazing. I talk about them up here not because they drive me crazy, though. They do. But, but more than that, because I love them and they feel like my world. I was praying the other night, uh, and it was a night where I was going to see Joe and Josh at Kelly's Irish Pub, 
uh, on Old Torf. Shout out to them because it's a great place. Um, and on the way there, I got there a little early, so I sat in my car and I used the evening prayer guide that we have on our website, and I just prayed that. And as I prayed it, and I was thanking God for things, the thing that popped up most in my heart was my wife. And so I just texted her and told her, like, man, you're an incredible wife. I love you. If something were to happen to me and I had a limited amount of time left, I don't know how I would tear myself from your side because you're the only person that I'd want to see. I wouldn't want to be anywhere besides by you. Like, I don't want to spend my final days next to you. That's beautiful. And you, you can go, oh. But in the span of those final days, there may be other things that God has for me. And her side may not necessarily always be the side that I need to be at. It's a history and a beautiful vision in the New Testament of individuals that were locked up in jail. Who had to send off people that they loved. Who had to feel lonely. Had to feel hurt. Had to be by themselves sometimes. Had to lose things that they thought were valuable. Had to adjust the things that they saw as valuable. Like there's a history and beautiful story of this. And the beautiful vision that the Bible gives us is that in the midst of all of that change and all of that loss, that there will be something that doesn't just cover you or fill in the gaps with something that's exceedingly better in terms of its value, in terms of its eternal promise, in terms of what it provides. Man, like, I want, I want to be a part of that story. But if I'm being honest, and here's the thing, if you're being honest, a lot of what prevents me from being in that story is simply how highly I value and how tightly I cling to the comfort and security of life's blessings. There's another element to this, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to, I'm not going to completely dive into it, but I do want to just mention it which is another way this kind of is, is divvied out in our life a little bit, is, is also like thinking about how happy we may have been or, or kind of wanting to run back to the security of, of having like a spiritual existence before Jesus. And I want to talk, I want to address this because I think that this is a reality of where we live. If we were like in, I don't know, insult, insert rural town, but if but we live here, and the thing is, one of the huge realities of where we live is that people walk around being like, I'm spiritual, I think Jesus is great, I have a connection with God, a God, I don't know who he is, and I don't feel like it's, I feel like it's really haughty or arrogant to like really say who that God is and to put so much detail on him in X, Y, and Z. And so we, a lot, some of y'all, but a lot of people in this city, and, and maybe even some of y'all have that experience. And in a lot of ways, the author of Hebrews is pushing back against that as well, to say like, hey, in those moments when you felt like life was more convenient because you walked around and you never offended anybody. You got to be like, no, nah, whatever you believe is fine and X, Y, and Z and all gods are the same and blah, 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 blah. Like whenever you were doing that and you felt great and you felt the security of that moment, it's also pressing against that. Where they lived in a world where be able to say Moses is the top dog right underneath the father 
was a comfort and a security for them because that's what everyone else believed. But the thing is, again, the values for their life adjusted. The things they saw as most important changed. What they saw as a vision of what a good life was, was different, and it was centered on the person of Jesus and what he's done on him being our new representative uh, and, and him being sent from God to make the world right and, and realistically to draw us back to a relationship with God, right? And so the comfort that we may have had in those moments where we felt like we didn't offend anybody, okay, I hear you. That sort of peaceableness, if that's a word, uh, that sort of peaceableness that we've had and experienced in those moments, man, that may have been one thing, and it may have been enjoyable for the time, and the Bible does value peace. The New Testament literally says, do all you can to be peaceful with one another. But there are certain things where when we value and relate, or when we relate to and value those aspects like comfort and, and even just not frustrating someone else because we say, no, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I don't believe anything else is true. I don't think that any belief system gets you where you want to go. I don't think any belief system provides human flourishing. I believe Jesus is the exact expression, exact expression of the nature of God who came from God in order to bring about justice and in order to make us new through dying on the cross for sin and resurrecting in new life as a down payment of the restoration that is to come and that there is no way to life save him. Right, to know that I'm going to not, I'm going to lose comfort and security in saying that and in believing that and in being strong in that is a part of what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's going to be better than that, though. He's better than that. I know it's challenging to say and live in that tension. But Jesus is worth even more glory than that peace. Jesus is worth even more glory um, than that sort of comfort and security. He's worth even more glory than that. And so press on. Press on with your confession. That word is important in this text. It's, it's basically them being like, nah, Jesus is alive. And the people around them being like, bro, you tripping. And then being like, let me trip then, because I'm, I'm not going anywhere with it. I'm sticking with it. And so, all right, how do we relate to, to good things then? All right, I, I, maybe you have felt what I'm saying in some way where it's like, man, I, I know what it feels like to really love the comfort and security of life's blessings, and I feel like God is asking me and calling me maybe more importantly or, or more emphatically um, away from those blessings, and in my, I, I want to focus on being for him, being faithful to him, and maybe even beyond the scope of faithfulness, I want him to use me in some way. How do I relate to these good things that draw me and ask me to come uh, to them and, and, and really that I'm tempted to come to them? They don't necessarily even, even ask me, but how do I do that? Well, a couple of things. First one uh, is this. Don't treat them as evil, right? Don't see them as evil, right? And don't value them as ultimate. Don't see them as evil. Don't value them as ultimate. Um, why? Because there is likewise a very fanatic approach to the idea of holiness and faithfulness that makes good things into evil things, and then that damages God's, I think, calling in our life to steward the world around us well. Right? I've seen people mistreat or misalign uh, with the world around them for the sake of just feeling like they're honoring God. 
Um, and, and here's the thing. I've said this to a couple of y'all through the course of the past few weeks, and it's something I feel like I'm learning in my own life. But idealism is beautiful. Idealism is powerful. Uh, most incredible things that you experience in your life and most incredible things that others experience in their life is likely due to somebody having a wildly ideal vision of something. Like, it's going to be this, it's going to be that, it's going to be perfect. But the thing is, idealism is the source or origin of incredible impact in the world, and it's also the source and origin of incredible pain in the world. Because you can either be ideal and demand the ideal and demand uh, uh, perfection from people in a way that scars them and hurts them and leaves them pained, or you can have an idealism that compromises and invites and is compassionate that oftentimes while, not, while losing the exact vision of idealism that you started with, tends to make an impact in their lives down the road. It's not letting go of a vision, but it is applying that vision properly to, to someone's life where they are and trying to get to impact, not ideal. And here's the thing, when it comes to not seeing things as evil, don't see them as something where it's like, oh, the ideal thing is that I only think about Jesus. No, because we see Jesus in all these different areas. That's what makes them appealing, to be frank. Like, we see Jesus in the beautiful blessings of our life. And so that's why we're drawn to them. So don't see them as evil. They're not evil. The blessings in your life are not evil. I want you to enjoy your home. I ain't trying to see you move into a low-income neighborhood and renovate that bad boy to the point that it's completely lost that that house used to be a part of the community. That's called gentrification. However, what I do want to advocate for is that you would honestly like love where you live, that where you live would be a sanctuary, that you would find a rest there. Not just that it would be some type of avenue for mission, because it's more than that. It is still more than that. If you have people in your house every night and you're like, my house is an avenue for mission, I guarantee you, your life is going to be exhausting. So it's, 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 a, it's in addition to being an avenue for mission, it's also a sanctuary. It's also where you come and find rest and joy. I want you to enjoy your backyard more than I do. I want you to enjoy your children, and I want you to enjoy your family, and I want you to enjoy good food, and I want you to enjoy your car. I hope you have a nice car. I, all those things, all of that. Don't treat them as evil. They're not. Thank God for them, in fact. Thank God for every little thing you have. Thank him all the time. Just don't treat any of those things as ultimate either. Don't demand from those things more than they can give. Because if you do, you're vulnerable and they're vulnerable. You have plunged both of you, both parties, into an extremely vulnerable place. So don't see them as evil, but likewise, don't treat them as ultimate. Second thing is I want to I put us back at um, consider Jesus, verse 2, right? Consider Jesus, holy brothers and sisters, consider him. What does that mean? Again, we said it earlier, set the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your spirit on him, right? That's the goal. And so enjoy and take advantage of the gifts that God has given He's given those things. He gave them the blessing of Moses, and he gave them the blessing of redemption and restoration. He gave them all those things. And they are actually utilized across Scripture as testimony of who God is and what he's done. And it's good to use those things like that. But set the eyes of your spirit, the eyes of your hope on Jesus. Right? Remember to remind yourself of what he's done and who he is. 
Remind yourself that none of these things love you the way he does, and none of them are going to provide for you the way he will. That at the end of your days, when you close your eyes for the last time, it will not be any of these things that you see. Not a single one. Not a one of them. As beautiful as they are, as opposite of evil as they are, as incredibly good as some of them are, when you close your eyes, it will be not one of them that you see. It will be Jesus. So, what am I at here? I stopped the timer. I guess I was like, whatever. Um, so, I'm, I think I'm just gonna think I'm just gonna pray for us. I had another analogy, but it's silly and not worth telling. It's about sports teams. Don't worry about it. Um, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we're gonna take some time in communion together. Father, thank you so much for the good gifts that you've given us. Thank you, Father, uh, that so many of us have incredible things in our life that we're so overjoyed by. Thank you that there's things like careers in this room, and there's things like incredible destinations of of like like impact, and and like that's amazing. Thank you, God, that there's things like comforts, like friends and deep relationships. Thank you that there's spaces like family and houses that are sanctuaries, and there's cars that are comfortable and make commutes just incredibly simple. Thank you that there are incredible blessings in this room to which we can look to you and thank you for, Father. But we ask now as your people that you would not that you would help us and that we would not uh, make your son Jesus and move him from the source into being a source. Help us, Father, protect the world around us, protect our lives and our hearts by preventing that in our lives. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you. Help us not fall in to a place where we start to rely on the comforts uh, and the security of life's blessings and cling to those things as though they are the answer to our lives and they're the answer to um, the needs of our heart. Help us, Father. I want us to be faithful to you, God faithful. Thank you. The example we have in that is your son. And thank you that it's, it's him to, to which we're instructed to set the eyes of our heart on. And so, Father, help us set our eyes on you. Let us connect with you daily. Help us utilize every resource available. Help us resource a daily rhythm, a weekly rhythm, and a monthly rhythm that's on our website. Help us try to just take advantage of every little thing. Don't let us stop, Father, but rather let us hear this this warning as it truly is, a warning, and let us stop and pause and take inventory of our hearts and really decide and demand of ourselves that we're going to set the path straight, not by just battling down the hatches, but rather by setting our eyes on you and reminding our hearts of your faith, your goodness, your love, and your mercy. Set our hearts on you, Father, and set our minds on you. Uh, Restore our hearts. Encourage us in the midst of discouragement. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.